Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, growing up a big hockey fan in Cleveland, Ohio, can be a bit of a lonely journey, as it turns out. And it's one that writer, comedian, singer, songwriter, and Ohio-born Dave Hill knows all too well. He joins me to talk about his new book, The Awesome Game, One Man's Incredible Globe-Crushing Hockey Odyssey, where he tries to answer that eternal question, why isn't hockey more popular in America? We are just 68 days from Christmas as of tomorrow, and that means it's time for Deloitte Canada's annual holiday retail outlook. Uh, It will come as no surprise that many say they are feeling the pinch, and then some this year, so that they will do more penny pinching this holiday season than in years past. This year marks 100 years for the Disney Corporation, and as we celebrate collectors and collections this week, we meet a man known as America's Toy Scout, who also happens to have the largest privately owned collection of Disney Park memorabilia in the world. Joel McGee joins me to talk about some of the gems in his collection, how he found them, and why he keeps adding to it. But first, the bombing of a hospital in Gaza today has killed some 500 people, according to authorities in Gaza, who blame Israel for the attack. While Israel says it is not responsible, instead saying a failed rocket launch by a group known as the Palestinian Islamic Jihad caused the blast. We hear from Doctors Without Borders about the attack and the situation in Gaza, and also how it could derail the U.S. President Biden's visit to the region on Wednesday. You know, there are moments in every conflict that feel like turning points. And today in the Middle East, for the second time in just 11 days, you got the sense that today was one of those days. I felt exactly that way, of course, on the morning of October the 7th, that Saturday morning, when that Hamas attack uh, killed so many Israelis uh, and, and others and Canadians and civilians. You just knew that things were going to happen. And today is another one of those days. At least 500 people, according at least to the Gaza Health Ministry, were killed uh, by an explosion at Al-Ali Arab Hospital, where not only the sick and injured were, but also many of those displaced were sheltering. That's again, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Now, they blamed an Israeli airstrike. Israel says it was not responsible, instead saying a failed rocket launch by a group known as Palestinian Islamic Jihad caused the blast. It is one of the deadliest attacks on a hospital in decades and has led to widespread international condemnation. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the bombing is illegal and objectionable. The uh, news coming out of uh, of Gaza is uh, horrific and absolutely unacceptable. International humanitarian and and international law needs to be respected uh, in, in this and in all cases. Again, um, ABC tonight quoting U.S. security officials as saying they simply don't know at this point where the rocket came from. But tensions were already sky high, as you would understand, throughout the region. And many have been quick to make up their mind about who was responsible. There have been protests at Israeli embassies in several countries. Protesters clashed with Palestinian police in the occupied West Bank, underscoring anger there with Palestinian Authority leadership, of course, which, which is separate from Hamas, which rules Gaza. And all this happening as U.S. President Joe Biden is on his way to Israel, where he's set to meet with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. There was also a planned summit in Amman, Jordan, with the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas and leaders of Jordan and Egypt. That has been cancelled. 
And again, it comes against this backdrop of what appears to be an imminent move by Israeli ground troops into Gaza in response for that October 7th attack by Hamas and a growing humanitarian crisis in Gaza itself with a full blockade and bombardment of the area and no way for now for Gazans to leave. We begin tonight with Joseph Beliveau. He's executive director of Doctors Without Borders Canada, and he joins me from Geneva. Joseph, thank you. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Uh, the, the news emerging uh, today about this uh, this hospital bombing uh, is 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 horrific, and I've seen the World Health Organization has released a statement. Uh, what is Médecins Sans Frontières saying about this tonight? We're just starting to get a, a little bit of feedback from some of my colleagues uh, there, so uh, uh, Dr. Kassan was actually there, very uh, luckily uh, escaped with his, his life, but he was uh, uh, in the hospital and had, had this to say. This is a quote. We were operating in the hospital. There was a strong explosion and the ceiling fell on the operating room. This is a massacre. The Doctors Without Borders was not in a position to, to verify uh, exactly what happened, uh, exactly how many deaths, but certainly from the perspective of my colleague, uh, something uh, atrocious uh, has happened. And a little bit of the pattern uh, over the last days has been that uh, large numbers of people have sought uh, refuge in hospitals. Unfortunately, since the since the beginning, really since day one uh, of this round of of intense conflict, hospitals haven't been spared amidst indiscriminate uh, airstrikes. And uh, previous to this event uh, that's happening just right now, two of the three hospitals that MSF or Doctors Without Borders supports uh, were hit in airstrikes. Uh, and we know that several others uh, beyond what what uh, what we've been supporting have have also been hit. So this this pattern of indiscriminate bombing is, is a feature of of what's been happening. And obviously that runs directly counter to the Geneva Conventions humanitarian law, which very clearly states uh, that non-combatants must be uh, distinct from combatants and 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 measures taken to protect them. Uh, and that is absolutely not what we are seeing uh, right now. What would Doctors Without Borders like to see generally uh, happen right now? Uh, clearly, there's a humanitarian crisis there. The aid has not been coming in that we've seen. Uh, what are some of the steps that MSF would like to see done now? So there's there's three aspects of what's happening inside of Gaza uh, right now. So one is this, this indiscriminate bombing, which is killing civilians, and it's creating terror. Uh, and that's that's one of the the, the strong themes that comes up over and over when when my colleagues are are, are updating me uh, is is they're they're terrified because of this the indiscriminate nature of the violence they don't know where to go there's no safe place to go the second feature is the blockades uh, in which uh, nothing is allowed in and so we've uh, we've seen a rapid uh, diminishing of uh, really essential supplies and goods water we we don't have in in the hospitals that we're supporting we don't have uh potable or or, or drinking uh, water anymore uh medical supplies we don't have painkillers we're doing surgeries without without anesthetics uh, anymore the, the this blockade not letting uh, essential items food fuel uh water medical supplies uh is is a, is a central feature and then thirdly this forced uh, evacuation aspect of it uh, within, you know, in some cases, well, we've all heard about the the 24-hour uh, ultimatum. Uh, in at least one case, a hospital that we were working in was was told to evacuate completely within two hours. The implication being that if it uh, wasn't, uh, that it would be targeted. So yeah, people can't. There are injured people who can't move. There are, you know, seriously ill people who can't move. And then there are. The, the medical practitioners who've sworn and dedicated their lives to providing medical care who also 
refuse in in many cases to 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 leave. So you know when you're asking me what are what do we call for, it is a really basic fundamental respect for human life and respect for for non-combatants first and foremost. There's almost no more space for humanitarian action right now because because our people are terrified. Um, they're exhausted. Many have been uh, personally and directly affected uh, by this, and there's no supplies. So we can barely continue to respond in a humanitarian manner anywhere anymore. So respect for human life, uh, you know, stop the indiscriminate bombing and allow humanitarian supplies in. Uh, one colleague was just describing how, uh, you know, hundreds of people, maybe thousands, uh, had, had gone to a, a school grounds and just throwing mattresses anywhere uh, in stairwells and outside and and with no provisions another colleague was was kind of describing how he is a medical practitioner himself he said i had to i had to stop what i was doing helping assisting people with their injuries and their medical needs and just go to find enough water to bring back to to for my children because there just isn't you know so it's it, it's hard to almost I, I kind of lose words i kind of lose adjectives and every time I hear an update from from my colleagues, including the one I just read to you uh, at the top of this uh, report, uh, uh, almost seems worse than what has happened previously. Yeah, I should point out to listeners that, of course, the Médecins Sans Frontières is non-aligned politically. This is really a humanitarian. This is a cry for humanitarian, the humanitarian situation, period. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, the, the horrors uh, that, that, that kicked this, this off 10 days ago, there's a history that's so much longer than, than 10 days. But, but the horrors that kicked it off 10 days ago, we were equally devastated and, and aggrieved and, uh, and, and offered our uh, assistance immediately to the Israeli authorities, uh, recognizing that the number of casualties uh, over, the, over there might briefly overwhelmed the, the medical system. And I say briefly because the, the medical system is very strong there. The mm. emergency response mechanism is very strong, which is why we haven't historically worked in, in Israel and why, conversely, we have historically worked in Gaza because the system there is so weak and the needs are so much higher medically. Joseph, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. We're trying to share some of the human stories that have been emerging from this conflict in the Middle East. And of course, last night we spoke with Mirav Lashem Gonen, mother of a 20-year-old, 23-year-old woman believed to be held in Gaza as a hostage, last heard from when she was shot after trying to flee a music festival in southern Israel on Saturday. Here's what she had to say last night. I told her, I love you. We all love you. You're very loved by us. And when you will get better, we will go to the coffee shop and we will sit and you will talk to me for two hours, say whatever you like to tell me and share with me. Yeah, the emotion there, the human loss, the suffering that's been going on. Tonight, we want to share the story of a Palestinian-Canadian named Rani Hamaid. He is at home in Hamilton, worried about his parents and siblings, still in Gaza with nowhere to go. The 36-year-old left Gaza at 29. He's now a Canadian citizen, but his focus for the past 11 days has very much been on Gaza and his family. The hospital tragedy today, that attack that left 500 dead, happened not far from where his sister is staying with their kids. He told me earlier today. Here's part of my conversation with Rani Hamed. Thank you for having me. I've been following your situation for more than a week now, and I, I guess there's just simply been no good news at this point in time for, for, you, for your parents, for your siblings, for your nieces and nephews that are still there. My sister, she's crying. Her kids, she has five kids. The oldest, she's 12, Amira. 
and her youngest, she's two years old. They're screaming, crying, and and I was like, I asked her, what is the kids doing? And she told me, you know, my kids, the uh, her oldest son, his name is Atiyah, he has a friend. He was sheltering in that hospital, so he right. keep asking me, do you know anything? Did you hear the news of my friend? And and my, my sister says, like, no. And I was, like, telling my sister, is there anything you can distract him to watch, play video games? And she said, there is no electricity, Ronnie. Right. There is nothing, you know? It's And, um, and your parents, too, are still in, in Gaza City, right? I mean, I, I obviously, the, we've all seen the evacuation order to move everyone south. That is just not possible for some. And I gather your parents, are they still in Gaza City? Yes, yes. Mm. My, my parents are still in Gaza City, and and that's even you know my 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 sister-in-law with her five children, my nieces and nephew, they moved to Rafah City, mm-hmm. uh, in um in the south of Gaza, as they were instructed by the Israeli military, and and my my parents were on the way to follow my sister-in-law and my nieces and nephew. And the car was hit, the car in front of them, like not directly the one in front of them, but like a few cars ahead of them. And they saw the cars hit in front of them. And they saw... So they had to turn back, right? They had to turn back. They turned back. And since then, they couldn't move because they feel it's unsafe. And and they feel they're going to be killed either way, you know? And and, and some people, they say like, you know what? It's better to stay at my home and you know even though my my parents are not in their home because our home is destroyed mm-hmm. uh, already and they flee already five homes you know and they're at my grandpa's house and which is they're at a great great danger you know I, yeah. what would you, i mean you must feel helpless where you are but i know you've been trying you've been trying to ask uh you know we know that there's been repeated rumors of, of the border of the Rafa crossing opening and, and people, some people being allowed to get out. I know that might not help your family because I don't believe they're Canadian citizens, but there is some hope that people will be able to, to at least get some aid in. And that's not happening either right now. Exactly. So as you said, it's, it's a, there, there have been many talks. This is the fourth day of everyday promise that this border will be open to foreign nationalities, you know, including Canadian citizens who are in Gaza. That does not include my my parents and my nieces and my sister-in-law, who I'm trying hard to try to contact all the government officials, including uh, the foreign minister and the prime minister office and the immigration to try to include them in, in these evacuation to bring them as a Canadian citizen. I want to have my family, you know, here. Canada has been a champion in, in you know, in opening the borders for refugee and being, you know, helping with humanitarian cases, you know. And yeah. I, I not think the Canadian government should stop when it comes to Palestinian unit. We need to continue to help everyone who's in need, you know. Yeah, you're you're a Canadian citizen now. Congratulations, by the way. I know that was a big step for you because you were in Gaza in 2014. The last one of the last times we saw yeah. something really major. Just a young, younger. Obviously, it must bring back a, a lot of memories for you too. What would you like to see? What, what do you expect? And this is a question I, I don't think we ask often. But what would you like to see Hamas do? 
what I would like to see myself is I would like to see immediate ceasefire. Right. You know, immediate end for all what is happening. Removing the blockade in Gaza, you know, people live there, you know, <laughs> dropping more more bombs. It's not yeah. the solution. It's never the solution in Gaza or anywhere in the world. It's not the solution. You know, what is, scares me the most of all, there is no one has mentioned peace, you know, or peace talk or pushes for peace talk in the yeah. news. It was like, you know, the ground invasion, uh, or if it's going to open the border and then we're going to start the ground invasion. And, and you know, there, there's no one is talking about this. And then what happened? To, to this piece, you know, that's what I would like to see. You, there's not much. I, I said in the meantime, you just have to hope that everyone's OK. Right. And that's that's pretty much what you're left with, hoping that everyone is OK. I, the, I think there is uh, it's hope is definitely is one of the main things. But also I have been myself and many of the friends here in Canada have been trying to raise our voices, calling the Canadian government for push for a ceasefire, push for a peace talk. You know, we have the power to to make a difference in this. And, you know, we have to raise our voice to stop this, to stop the blood, to stop killing people, killing civilians, you know, and start a peace talk. You know, we, we really need to push to, for that. You know, it's not only... I know and understand and I want my family to come here, you know, and I'm sure every Canadian who has a family in Gaza or Canadian citizen who are Gaza, they want to leave. But also, you know what? We also need to push for ending this. Yeah, Rani, uh, I appreciate your time. I really hope your family are okay. Thank you. Thanks so much for sharing. It must be a, what a difficult time for you to to, uh, and also just have to watch this from, to have to watch this from afar. Uh, feeling yeah. like you can't really do much to help must be a really difficult situation. Rani, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to stay in the Middle East, in Israel and Gaza for this and beyond for uh, the next little bit here. Uh, As you may have heard on the news, we were talking about it in the last half hour. Um, Gaza Health Ministry says 500 people or more were killed in an explosion at the Al-Arabi or Al-Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza City today. Uh, That was a place where there weren't only sick and injured people there. There were also people sheltering there. Uh, And, of course, they've blamed uh, the Israelis for this. Now, Israel says it was not responsible. Uh, They're saying it was a failed rocket launch by a group known as Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Uh, One ABC, ABC News heard from one U.S. official, they simply don't know yet. Now, all this has happened as Joe Biden is literally in the air on his way to the area now. This was meant to be a visit to try to speak to all sides on the, of this conflict from the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He was also supposed to meet um, tomorrow with uh, with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas uh, and the leaders of Jordan and Egypt. This was supposed to happen in Amman in Jordan. And this was a big part of this trip, uh, a way of trying to make sure that he's speaking to each side, that America's acting as some sort of broker here. But that has been cancelled after the events of today. There are many reasons for it. Part of it is there's been a lot of anger in the West Bank, where Mahmoud Abbas is based. Uh, uh, Protests on the street. There have also been protests in other parts of the world in front of Israeli embassies, uh, specifically in Turkey, but in other parts of other countries as well. So regardless of who may be to blame for this, and we may not know for a while exactly, um, the 
impact of it is being felt in many, many places tonight. And that's going to have a direct impact on the diplomatic efforts to try to see if there's not a way to de-escalate the situation. Jager Hassan is an adjunct professor of political science at King's University College, and he joins me now. Jager, thank you. My pleasure, Ben. Thank you. It's hard to, you know, yesterday, I think there was a certain amount of, uh, well, optimism is a tough word, but a certain amount of optimism that this Biden trip, uh, given who he was meeting with, might lead somewhere. And now it appears after the events of today that that's pretty much off the rails. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you use the exact, uh, exactly correct word, broker. I think the U.S. was trying to demonstrate that it's an honest broker when it comes to this conflict by uh, meeting both with the Israelis and then with uh, Arab leaders, uh, members of the Arab leadership. And uh, the, the cancellation of that summit clearly demonstrates that uh, members of the Arab community do not view the U.S. as an honest broker, as a country that has the perhaps uh, willingness or ability to, uh, I, I think, uh, objectively try and negotiate uh, this conflict. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that stands out is is when you start to start to see those protests today, I, I imagine there's also pressure on leaders from below, right, from their own populations after what happened today. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned that uh, the protests are taking place in parts of the Arab world. Uh, in fact, they're taking place all over the Middle East and parts of North Africa, uh, and uh, also including in Iran and Lebanon. And the reason why I mentioned those two countries is because we know in Lebanon there's Hezbollah, which uh, has historical animosity with uh, the Israelis, and they've already exchanged rocket fire. And so the, the fear is that that may escalate. And then, of course, there's Iran, uh, which has also warned that it may also launch, uh, th- that it may become more actively involved uh, in this conflict. And, of course, I think that's something that we should all be concerned about. Yeah, it feels like we're very much on a knife's edge tonight. And that is, you know, we're, the situation was already very complicated. And what's happened today, I mean, it feels like it's on a knife's edge. And I don't mean just in Israel and Gaza, but right around the region. Yeah, exactly. Look, uh, I, I mean, as, as horrible as, as it would have been, if uh, th- there was some hope that perhaps the conflict would be ice uh, contained within the Gaza Strip and uh, between Israel and Hamas, uh, and of course, there were those who were saying th- this has the potential to uh, expand into a wider regional conflict. And that's what it looks like now. Uh, unfortunately, the volatility of, uh, of the conflict and uh, the different actors and countries that are involved, it, it could contribute to an escalation, increased tensions and a wider regional conflict between the various actors and countries that seem to have a stake in this conflict. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think that, uh, I mean, that looked to be the case was I think the Americans were hoping to bring Mahmoud Abbas uh, and the Palestinian Authority on board here. And I think what we're seeing on the streets of Ramallah today and tonight with the protests, that that and the three days of mourning and so on, that that's put Mahmoud Abbas in a position where he simply can't be what the Americans may have hoped he could be in this situation. Exactly. Uh, he, he has to, uh, Mahmoud Abbas has to completely uh, denounce what's happened uh, and he has to, uh, he, he had to pull out of the summit uh, with President Biden. And uh, again, we will have to see what, uh, what this volatility leads to because uh, uh, the, the Abbas and other uh, Arab leaders will have to take a strong position on this, uh, partly for the reason you mentioned that they're a domestic base, their constituents will be demanding some form of action or response uh, response to this uh, this event.
Yeah. When one looks at what happened, I mean, one of the things that struck me today, and I think someone mentioned that in this situation, everyone just ran to blame whoever they don't like uh, in the, in this whole conflict. And it feels like what happened today unless something definitive comes out very quickly and even then it might not matter it might not matter on the streets of tunis or on the streets of ankara or on the streets of beirut what the reality was here i think people have seen what happened and have made up their own minds about what, what exactly or who exactly was responsible uh, for what happened in gaza today yeah uh, look I, I think the way i would describe it is the damage is done and the reaction is clear that uh uh People in the, in the Muslim Middle East and parts of North Africa are reacting in a way that suggests uh, that, that Israel is at fault here. And they expect uh, the international community and their governments to respond uh, accordingly. Uh, now, I, I think it, it will matter once, uh, once we have sort of some verification or a definitive answer in terms of who's responsible for this. Uh, it, it should matter in terms of international law and the ability of international organizations uh, to respond in some form. And I think it would also put the U.S. in, in a difficult position in terms of how it would respond uh, if uh, it turns out it's verified that Israel was responsible for this. And if it's not, of course, then, uh, then, then the blame shifts to uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and, 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 and we'll see what happens from there. Yeah, I mean, I, Anshul Pfeffer is a reporter with Haaretz in, uh, in in Israel, and he was pointing out that, you know, the time here on that front is very much of the essence that by the time Biden lands, if they don't have proof of what at least what Israel is claiming here, that they could find themselves. I mean, they, they're going to there's going to be pressure, I think, too, from the Americans here to say, OK, what exactly happened here and where is the proof of what you're saying? Because I, I feel like an, an American statement um backing up what Israel is saying may not be viewed particularly as, as unbiased within uh, the Muslim yeah. and the Arab world, but it may be viewed differently within the international community. Again, it's just, as you well know, this is an incredibly complicated situation and just the loss of life period is, is devastating. But diplomatically, what a complicated situation we're now in. Yeah. I, again, I, I use the word volatility. It, it, uh, it, it creates even more of a mess that uh, that we've seen over the last week and a half or so. And uh, I think it, it uh, complicates the situation for uh, Israel and, and the Palestinians and also the role of the U.S. Uh, it, uh, the, U it, the other thing I would note is in terms of Biden uh, and the role of the U.S., they have to ask Netanyahu and the Israelis very difficult questions not just related to this specific incident, but also related to Israel's wider mission or objective here in terms of going into Gaza. Because if, even if we were to say Israel is cleared of this uh, incident, uh, who's to say it, it might not happen uh, when Israel goes into Gaza, right? Uh, right. Uh, accidentally and so on. Something like this could happen again. And uh, the U.S., of course, wouldn't uh, want to be in a position where it's viewed as supporting Israel and, 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 and events like this happens again. Right. And I was noticing that François Macron tonight, the French president, I mean, we've seen a fair amount of unity amongst amongst allies on this, but that François Macron tonight was calling for both an investigation, independent investigation into this, into what happened at the hospital in Gaza today, and also uh, the reopening of the humanitarian corridors, that there's more pressure now to get humanitarian aid into Gaza. I think that pressure is building. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, as you noted, a lot of uh, allies, uh, governments that have came out, that have come out uh, staunchly in support of Israel, are sort of 
softening their tone in light of uh, the, this incident. They're, they're talking more now about uh, taking humanitarian issues into consideration and potentially a safe passage or opening a corridor for civilians uh, to, to safely pass. Uh, it, it, it really has changed the dynamics of, uh, of, of what, this, this conflict. And look, we, we're only about two weeks into it. And, and so things are really uh, fluid here and changing really fast. Well, Jager, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. And they became very, uh, very aggressive and, uh, and to a degree that we would deem it uh, unsafe and unprofessional. Yeah, it was quite the moment. Major General Ian Huddleston there saying Chinese warplanes intercepted a Canadian plane conducting sanctions enforcement patrol in the East China Sea. Uh, they were on an Aurora aircraft, including Global News reporter Nithu Garsha, who happened to be there. And they said, said that this plane was acting or planes were acting in an aggressive manner on Monday in international airspace, again, off the coast of China. Uh, he said they became very aggressive and to a degree he would deem unsafe and unprofessional. And they were aboard uh, this aircraft, at least Global News was, uh, it's part of Operation Neon. That's Canada's contribution to help enforce sanctions against North Korea uh, when this all took place. And uh, he said it's a ramp up of the aggressiveness that was really unexpected and unnecessary in the context of the mission that uh, Canada is helping out with there, said Major General Huddleton. Well, joining me now is Charles Burton. He's a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, a former Canadian diplomat in Beijing. Welcome back, Charles. Thank you. Good to speak with you, Ben. This was a bit of an unusual one. I mean, it's not unusual in the sense that China does this this often, but just within the circumstances of what the Aurora is doing there, this seemed like an odd one. Well, yeah, I mean, they were doing an eight-hour um, reconnaissance to try and see if there were any ships illegally um, bucking the UN sanctions against North Korea and, and transferring oil in the high seas uh, to, to serve North Korea's energy needs. You know, because of North Korea's um, egregious violation of of uh, international law with regard to its nuclear threat, you know, these sanctions have been imposed, and Canada, for some years through the Operation Neon, has been helping uh, the UN determine if there are violations of sanctions and allowing um, ships down below to interdict um, the ships that are illegally supplying North Korea with the stuff that they're not supposed to be getting. Um, in this case, I, I saw a video of it. Um, the, uh, the the mission was, as I say, eight hours long, and there were, I think, three episodes of Chinese planes coming up. But the particularly frightening one, which has caused our Minister of uh, Defense to to uh, raise it in a in a news conference and to say that he would be going to uh, pursue this with the Chinese government, was a Chinese plane which accompanied the Canadian plane for quite a long period with the Chinese plane completely level the Canadian plane and the wings uh, only five meters apart, 16 feet. You know, it's very, very dangerous um, with these massive machines. And what would happen if, in fact, there was a collision and uh, loss of life of uh, one or both planes? You know, it could really set off a crisis up there if that sort of thing was going to happen, and the Chinese seem to be prepared to take considerable risk in this regard. It's puzzling to know what their plan is here.
Yeah, uh, Charles, cer- certainly given the circumstances, I mean, this this operation to stop, uh, to sort of enforce those sanctions have been going on for a very long time. The East China Sea, obviously, a place where China tends to do things like this, whether on the sea itself or in the skies above. But again, it just the potential for something to go really wrong here uh, seems like one that uh, it's, it just seems reckless. And, and, I, and it's, I struggle to understand what why the recklessness would be a good idea, even from Beijing's point of view. They don't need that kind of situation on their hands right now either. No. And, you know, this is also going on in some reckless behavior with regard to the ships, which, um, Mm -hmm. you know, are going through the Taiwan Straits and freedom of navigation exercises going through the the South China Sea that, you know, that China is claiming illegally against U.N. uh, declaration on the on the U.N. um, conventional law of the sea that says that those are international waters, China um, has a nine dash line across the map that they've recently expanded to ten dashes, suggesting that virtually all of the Ch- South China Sea is a is a Chinese lake. Well, you know these the the idea of ships crashing into each other is equally as frightening, and uh, you know highly unprofessional. And if they think that they can intimidate uh, the Western powers and get them to stop with these freedom of navigation exercises or um, exercises designed to show that the Taiwan Straits are international waters or or this one designed to prevent uh, the resupplying of, of a Chinese really client state as North Korea is uh, against UN sanctions. Um, you know, they've got another thing coming. But um, um, I think it, it it reflects the sort of emotional nationalistic nature of China's uh, desire to expand China into these uh, into these territories, which are in international waters without question, and uh, which are essential to uh, global trade. I mean, uh, uh, I think some 40% of the world's uh, liquefied natural gas, for example, passes through the South China Sea. So we don't want China to have the ability to to coerce nations by threatening to cut off uh, essential trade in in energy and other products. So, you know, the the whole situation, I think, is just reflective of how dangerous the world is becoming, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in Israel, whether it's with regard to Taiwan. We seem to be getting closer and closer to the possibility of a a war that could be on many fronts, in other words, World War III. I mean, you know, the, 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 the stuff that's going on suggest this, but it just seems so unbelievable that this could be happening in our day and age. It does. I, I mean, I, the response, I guess, at this point, we've heard uh, Bill Blair bring it up. I mean, there's very little Canada can do to, but Canada can voice its displeasure. The Americans are clearly distracted right now by a bunch of other things. This will be seen, I think, as a minor incident. But another reminder, of course, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, is in Beijing as we speak. Uh, you know, that, that there is very much a power struggle going on uh, out there right now. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's all about um, does the West have the courage and the ability to allocate resources to um, match, you know, an axis of Iran, Russia and China. And the fact that Mr. Putin is uh, in Beijing for the Belt and Road Initiative that involves leaders of 140 countries that China is trying to um, bring into its orbit through these uh, development grants and loans, uh, you know, is is very concerning. And I did see an interview on the Chinese television with Mr. Putin 
where he seemed to be somewhat deferential to the Chinese and seemed to be suggesting that, you know, China can engage in its um, belt and road and, and develop a network of, in effect, client states in its part of the world. And, and Russia hopes to, um, to do what it's doing in Europe. In other words, uh, Ukraine, from Mr. Putin's point of view, is just the beginning of a larger plan to subvert liberal democracies that were previously part of the Soviet Union. Well, and I, I mean, yeah. with Iran, I mean, God help us in the Middle East, you know. Well, Charles, as always, thank you so much. Great to speak with you, Ben. You may have seen the Walt Disney Company celebrated 100 years on Monday. And what a titan it's become over the past century, from its iconic movies and TV shows to obviously theme parks around the world. I went to Disney World. I've only been to Disney World. I've never been to Disneyland. That's what happens when you grow up on the East Coast back in 1978, I think. It was a very long time ago. But man, do I remember it's a small world and the, the, the haunted house thing, which was awesome. Uh, it sparked a relationship, obviously, 100 years with a, more than a few fans and collectors, and perhaps none, no one uh, has held as much of Disney's history in their hands, especially of its theme parks, than my next guest. Now, this past summer, toy collector Joel, Joel McGee put some of his enormous Disney collection up for auction. How extensive was it? Van Eaton Galleries in L.A. had to rent an entirely new space to display it all. Here is Mike Van Eaton, co-owner of the gallery, kind of explaining the, just what he had on his hands. So uh, this collection has every map, souvenir map made. You'll hear that word a lot. Every of this, every of that. Um, this truck over here uh, used to sit on Main Street in the 1960s, early 1960s. Global Van Lines was a sponsor, and uh, it's actually an operating truck. When we got it, um, we uh, Bob Gurr designed it. He helped us restore it. And uh, this is a truck that Walt used to drive up and down Main Street before the park opened because it made it feel a little bit like a working man. Walt used to drive up and down Main Street. Can you imagine having that in your collection? 6,000 pieces Joel McGee has. And uh, he's also known as the Toy Scout. You may have seen him on any number of venues or, or TV programs or anywhere over the past few years. He joins me now. Joel, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. Nice to be here. Yeah, tell me about the hundred year birthday because I mean, clearly, very. I, I, I guess nobody but the Disney Corporation itself has held as much of Disney in their hands as you have over all these years. It must—it's kind of a big deal, hundred <laughs> years. <laughs> it is, you know. I mean, any company to make it to a hundred years is is a really big deal, and to make it to a hundred years and be the powerhouse they are today is is even that more incredible. I mean, you know, they, they have, you know, a part of every market, whether it be cinema, you know, the movies or, or merchandise or, you know, the theme parks. I mean, it's, it just, it touches everybody. I mean, literally I can't think of one single company that, that touches nearly every person in the, in the, maybe, you know, in the country for sure, but many other countries as well. And and you have, I, I forget now whether how much of it you've sold because I saw all that was on auction and it was absolutely jaw dropping the things that you had collected from Disney's theme parks over the years. How did that? How did that begin? Well, I, first of all, I only have four thousand five hundred pieces left or so out of the six thousand. <laughs> only. <Yes. laughs> wow. But you know, it, it's an adventure. You know, I mean, as my. You know, my being the Toy Scout, in fact, I'm actually in Atlantic City this week, you know, doing my, my buying events. And, 
And that's really kind of how I've been able to acquire all this stuff. Just just today, I purchased a, a plate set. It was a it was a commemorative plate set from the opening day of Epcot Center back in 1982, and I've never seen one before. And I'm like, here it is. Here we are again. You know, I mean, just it's, it must have been something that was in very few spots in the park because I'm like, man, after after 35 years, I've never seen this set before. You know, but yet it was from opening day, and and so that's the excitement of. You know, you never know, and you know, there's there's people scattered all over the country that used to work at the parks or visit the parks, and so there's it just seems like there's an endless endless supply of really cool stuff, and, and in this case, rare stuff, and you know, here we go again. <laughs> I can only imagine the look on the person's face who brought you that plate set, knowing your history and how much of an, an expert you are on this, and you looked up at, at them and said, "I've never seen one of these." What what a thrill! Yeah. She was, and, and, you know, she says, well, I'm really glad that I, I brought it because, um, you know, it's just been sitting in the, the closet basically for all these years. And, and, you know, knowing, you know, what I know about you and such, whether it be you having it or, or you know, a, a collector having it, you know, it's nice to know that, that it's going to have a good home. And, and a lot of people feel that way. And, and uh, you know, that's what makes it even more special. Yeah. Tell me a bit about the theme park idea, because I know obviously there, there are people who collect a lot of Disney items that are sort of related to the movies and other things. But you, you managed to really get this incredible, you almost recreate uh, the Disneyland and Disney worlds of the past with what you have on your hands. Where did that begin? Well, that began, it was kind of funny, it began in Orlando, of all places. Um, obviously, where Disney World's located. And I was I was not at anything related to Disney. I was at a a toy convention uh, relating to my business. And, you know, it had a whole bunch of people with different booths and such. And and I saw this booth. It was strange because I'm like, all he had was Disney World stuff. And I'm like, but they weren't just Disney World stuff. They were things that were used at the park, several things, including an attraction poster, which was for the Haunted Mansion. And I'm like, that's crazy. And I, and I got to talking to him. I said, I didn't know you could get things that were used at the parks. And again, he used to work at the at the park, and and these were things that he had quite had acquired, um, you know, during his time there. They used to actually have employee sales and cast member. I, they still have cast member only uh, things. So you know, it's it's kind of amazing. We can't, as the general public, get it, but you know, cast members they get it, and then later on they sell it, and and uh, that's kind of how I got started. And that was, geez, almost thirty years ago. Yeah, and you, I, I'm very, you just started off with a few, right? Like you started small, and then it just grew and grew and grew from there. Well, I have been known to be a crazy person. If anybody that knows me <laughs> says I'm crazy, so I, I guess I am. <laughs> when I get fixated on something, you know, it's, it's both feet in, you know, don't dabble, just do it, you know. And, and I was fascinated, and I still am. You know, again, my, my huge advantage in life was is the fact that I, I, I do the business that I'm in, and that's, you know, mm-hmm. I – I basically do buying events. You know, we, we put ads in local papers and on TV and stuff, you know, Hey, bring your stuff. And, you know, I'm here to buy it. And, and I would do for all these years, almost every year I would do a, an event in Orlando at where Disney world was and at Anaheim where Disneyland was. And it's amazing how many people came out that used to work at the parks that had acquired things that were used in the parks. Uh, it, it was, it was staggering, you know, and then, after that, then, you know, I kind of, once I kind of became the, the go-to Disneyland, Disney World person, other people would recommend, they'd say, hey, I know such and such, he's going to give you a call. And, 
And, uh, you know, he's got some things and it just kept on rolling down the hill like a big snowball. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, one of the things I found really fascinating, and, and I think this is part of what you do too, you sort of, you put them back into working order, but so much of it was in such good shape. I know not all of it was, but so much of it was in such good shape. It, it looks like the, the employees themselves took good care of the stuff too. Like a lot of it looked like it was in good shape and you've also fixed up a lot of it too, I gather. Well, yeah. I mean, the reason of, of a couple of things, it's either in good shape or it's trashed. You know I mean? Right. A lot of times Disney would, would throw stuff away and people would actually dig through the trash to to say pieces of history. I mean, <laughs> to bring it to I'll, you. I'll never, yeah. yeah yes. I mean, well, not thinking of selling it to me at the time, but just saving, they couldn't bear the thought of something being thrown away. That was a part of their history in their life, you know? And, and I remember buying some omnibus signs. There were little metal signs that advertised the rides that used to be on the double decker omnibuses at Disneyland and Disney world. And, you know, a guy brought them in and they were full of tar. They were just, I mean, it was, they were barely recognizable. And he says, I'm sorry that these are the condition they are. I dug them out of the garbage, you know, at Disneyland back in the day or, or by Disneyland. And they had put roofing shingles on top of them. And the hot sun melted them all onto these signs. Fortunately, they were metal signs. But I got them off. It took me a year. But I got all those signs back to pristine condition again. And, and uh, you know, I, I love restoring things. You know, I, I made a lot of the uh, actual animation props come back to life. Fortunately, I have friends in, in the, you know, that were in the industry of, of doing props for Hollywood and different things that, that helped me restore them. And I just love seeing them come back to life again, I guess, is you know, part of what my passion was. Joel, this is always, the, I remember going to Disney World for the first time when I was about eight and going on the Haunted Mansion and having the hitchhiking ghost scare me half to, half, scare my little soul half to, half to death. And it turns out you actually had the originals, which I thought was just, and those were at the auction, just unbelievable. But amongst your favorites, that must be, those must have been some of them. Those, those were absolutely it. I mean, it, it was so incredible. They were the ghosts that at the end of the ride, you would be in your doom buggy and it seemed like they were with you. You would look ahead and you could see them making all kinds of antics and waving and everything. But then when you turned, they weren't there. I mean, it was, yep. it was, they were truly ghosts. And of course it was the magic of mirrors and, 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 you know, the, the classic Disney technology, but how incredible. And you know, everybody says, well, how did you get those? How did you get those? Well, what happened was, is, Many years ago, they decided they wanted to go digital at Disney World. Uh, I might say that they've never done that at Disneyland, thank goodness. And so they wanted to make it more exciting, whatever it was. And, and Disney had, there was four sets of them, four sets of three. And one set went to an executive, I guess, and then they split up another set. And I think the Reagan Museum got one, and I think the Nixon Museum got the other one. I'm not exactly sure, but... This set was the only one offered to the public back in the day, and they were at a, a Disney charity auction. Uh, I think it was for D23, if I'm not mistaken, one of the early mm -hmm. ones. But they were just sitting on poles. They were, they were, it was almost terrible to think that they were not alive anymore. And, and I didn't get them. Um, it was somebody else that bought them, and, and they actually took the first steps of reanimating them 
a friend of mine actually reanimated them and brought them back to life. Um, and then fortunately, I was able to acquire them several years after that. But then we took it a step further and gave them their home back and made their sarcophagus and gave them the gargoyles to guard them. And, and oh, wow. uh, it was just incredible. And of course, we brought back the sounds of the of the haunted mansion, what they actually said. So they they moved with the actual sounds from back when they were in the park. And, you know, that was really exciting to have them all reunited together. And, and I'm glad the person that got them is, is going to keep them that way because it's, it truly is an amazing part of Disney World history and Disney history yeah. in general. I, 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 watching that video of, of that auction, I felt like I was seven again. Like I, I, I literally felt I was back in that dune buggy, of which you also had oh, uh, a coffee, yeah. by, by the way. Oh, what the are some of the other buggy. things? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love the dune <laughs> buggy. The dune buggy and, and those things were indestructible, if I remember correctly. What are some of the other oh, things yeah. that, that oh, you really loved? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess some of them are not the most valuable, but the things that have real personal connection to you as well, things that you've found over the years that you oh, really yeah. I, love. I've always said it doesn't have to be. I've got a piece that I've kept that came from uh, from Disney World. It was, uh, you know, it was just a little little uh, um, model, if you will, that they made for the ride of where the uh, Cars ride, Cars Land ride is now, not uh, in Disney World. The uh, the General Motors where you, you race the cars down the, mm-hmm. the track, test track, I'm sorry, test track. Yeah. And it was the police officer that hid behind the billboard. And <laughs> I remember that on that ride back in the day of all the things, you know, I just remember that police officer on his motorcycle hiding behind the billboard. And, you know, it just struck a chord with me. I'm like, wow, that's a piece of history that I remember. And here's the actual model that they made off of it. So and I still have a piece that's sitting right on my desk at my house. So I'm, I'm you know, it, it doesn't have to be super expensive. It just, it just needs to strike a chord in your heart. And, uh, and it just, every time I look at that, I, I think of the time that I was at Disney World riding that ride back in the day. Yeah, spoken like a true collector. In some ways, though, looking at the way you've managed to maintain and rebuild a lot of this stuff, it feels like you're a preserver as well. You don't just collect, you sort of preserve this for, for, for history's sake in many ways, because well, if you didn't do I, it, it wouldn't that. be around. I, yeah. I have just been a temporary caretaker. And, you know, part of, you know, what I have envisioned and, and envisioned with it is, is that keeping these things the way they should be even if they were discarded at the time, you know, we reanimated the tiki birds and we reanimated several things that, uh, that, uh, were from the parks. And, you know, it just, when, when I saw the people go through the, the exhibit, it was just, I mean, people were in tears coming up to me and they're like, Oh, I'm just so happy. You've brought so many happy memories back to me by being here. And, you know, the lines, there were days that the lines were blocks long. I'm like, and it was in the middle of the summer. I'm like, it was 90 some odd degrees out and people were willing to wait for hours just to get in to see the, you know, to see their memories. And, you know, that was really touching. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. I mean, uh, it really meant a lot to me. Right. And all the work you had done and you haven't stopped. You continue, as you said, you just bought those Epcot center opening day plates today. It'll never end for me. Yeah. I mean, it'll, it'll always be a continuing story. You know, people said, Oh, what do you think when you sold your collection? I'm like, no, it was just one chapter. And I look forward. I bought several more. I bought many things at the events. I mean, people came up to me and said, hey, can you come out to my car? I've got some cool things I'd like to, I'd like to sell you. I'm like, really? And I actually went out to people's cars and bought stuff right there at my own exhibit, my own event. I mean, Unbelievable. That's great. 
Uh, Joel McGee, <laughs> listen, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for sharing uh, that story with us. Uh, it, it, what, yeah, well, and I look forward to seeing what else comes into your collection. Much appreciated. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, it's always a joy talking about it. It's definitely going to be different this year than last. It seems like everything's going up a bit in price. I think there's obviously that pressure today with rates having gone up and people's mortgages. Because it's getting too expensive. With prices, everything's gone up and so will the cost of gift giving. I don't think I have to buy, so maybe I will cut down on that and (laughs) and maybe make a handmade card or something like that. Yeah, Canadians talking to Global News. 68 days tomorrow until Christmas. I've always been happy for Halloween because it means they don't put up the Christmas. Not that I have anything against Christmas decorations, but it feels like Halloween delays the Christmas stuff by just a little bit, right? So my you know, my dollar store or the pharmacy are still filled with Halloween stuff right now. Uh, but 68 days until Christmas, uh, and that means it's time for Deloitte Canada's annual holiday retail outlook. And this is seen as kind of uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a test. It's sort of it's a bellwether about where Canadians about what Canadians are thinking heading into the holiday season. It will come as absolutely no surprise, I think, uh, to most of you that many say they're feeling the pinch and then some this year. So that will mean even more penny pinching this holiday season than in years past. The consulting firm's annual spending outlook shows the average amount Canadians are planning to spend over the holidays this year has reached a five year low of $1,347. What does that mean? It's down 11% from 2022's spending forecast, and it's well short of the roughly $1,700 average seen back in 2019 when this survey was first launched. Joining me now is Marty Weintraub. He's national retail leader at Deloitte Canada, who put out this survey, of course, as they do every year. Marty, thank you so much. My pleasure. Canadians, we know, are feeling the pinch, uh, but I think businesses consumers everyone kind of looks to the holidays and thinks okay are they gonna are they gonna spend a little more this year are they gonna spend are they gonna be a little less cautious but clearly with uh with some storm clouds on the horizon and inflation still uh you know still high enough uh, people are people are are sort of battening down the hatches this year as far as you can tell absolutely and, and unfortunately i wish i could say it's you know very different from the the prior year although the drop was worse last year this year we're still going to see about an 11 percent drop according to our survey that's down to about 1347 dollars and it is a low um since we've been doing this for the last five years in fact it's about 21 percent lower than back in 2019 when we started our study so yes the clouds are overhead and certainly 21% lower than 2019 when that 1347 buys you significantly less stuff than it did back in 2019, too. 100%. It was 1700 and change back in 2019 before inflation. So the numbers I'm suggesting aren't even inflation adjusted. Right. Uh, so, And this is across the board, right? This is almost everywhere. I, I gather maybe experiences, uh, there's a bit of a bit of a light there. But other than that, this is pretty much consumers saying right across the board, we're cutting back. And in fact, it's a little bit even darker because the 11% does, like you said, cover all holiday spend. Buried in that is about an 11% uptick on travel, which I guess you could say is a little bit of a glimmering light. Because when we look at the gifts, both gift cards or actual gifts, that's like 18% and 14% respectively. So on the pure gift giving versus other things we spend holiday money on, it's a little bit worse. Right. And I guess with that is is the fact is travel prices are all up. So if you plan on going to see family anywhere, you're going to be spending more this holiday season, which may account for the extra spend. 
boom, you nailed it. It's not just that traveling more. It's that travel itself has gone up a lot. Wow. Uh, People, you you found out, though, that as always, consumers do want to enjoy the holidays. So they are going to be out there looking for bargains. And how does that, how is that going to work? Because it looks like consumers are becoming increasingly diligent about finding those deals. They are. Uh, 77% of Canadians plan to shop around for the best deals this year. That's about 5% higher than last year. Again, not a surprise given the context we talked about. Uh, And, you know, you go back for retailers, it's interesting, uh, sharp pricing and sharp promotional strategies will be very important to capture those precious shopper dollars this year. The other interesting stat is not just that spend is down, but you know we're going to be looking for value, which is either reasonable prices or value for money. And as a result, the number of stores and websites that customers are going to shop is also up about 37% from last year to about 16.5 websites and stores which means that people will be shopping around. So they walk in your doors and you don't have what they want at a good price, they'll go elsewhere. Yeah, I guess sometimes you have more time than money and sometimes more money than time. And this is very much the latter right now. So people are going to be very uh, very uh, judicious about judicious about where they spend. Uh, you, you mentioned that websites uh, or online sales, I, sh- I should clarify, uh, had been climbing year over year for many years now. And that's sort of plateaued as well. So everyone's feeling this pinch, brick and mortar and online. That's right. Uh, This year, we saw probably about 41% of holiday sales will go online, uh, which, by the way, is flat over the last two or three years. So we had a big peak in 2020 and 2021, obviously, because stores were closed. You had no choice. So we've kind of come back a little bit, still higher than pre-pandemic, where that was about 36% or so. So we definitely climbed a little bit. But the the trick with uh, online sales is they're also less profitable for most retailers. So you think about things like returns and shipping, um, it's complicated. So there's a fine balance between the online and the store channel in terms of what it means for a retail P&L. Yeah, that return thing is a big deal, isn't it? It always, it has been increasingly in the past while for people, even when gift giving, being able to send it back and obviously online makes that very easy. It does. You know, almost 60% of Canadians say returns matter and actually matter a lot. And what the return policy is, will influence where they shop. And so specifically in areas like clothing and apparel, you know, consumers for good or for bad have gotten used to be able to buy, you know, one, two or three sizes because fit can be tricky and then just send back what they didn't want. Retailers are, you know, becoming more in tune with the costs of processing those returns. So there's a little bit of a, I'm going to call it a public negotiation, if you will, going on between shoppers and the retailers around what's fair and what's appropriate for return policies because it can't be a win just for one side both sides got to win yeah and you've mentioned that when it comes to fair and appropriate that uh, consumers are are, are are they view retailers in a slightly different way now and i think that probably has a lot to do with the spillover from the whole grocery debate but it seems like like retail consumers are somewhat less trusting of retailers this these days and the way that they're pricing stuff and i guess i don't know it's because they're paying a lot more attention to prices or things have just gone up but uh People aren't that that happy about retailers these days, at least according to your numbers. Yeah, you know, I call that a little bit of a fragile hairline crack in the foundation between, you know, the relationship between the consumer and the retailer. And so that trust is being challenged. You know, this is about a 5% worse problem this year. It's about 73% of consumers believe retailers, you know, rightly or wrongly, are raising prices unfairly. And I'm not here, Ben, today to judge, you know, who's right or who's wrong. Perception counts is kind of what I'm what I'm talking about here is and retailers have work to do to try to reverse that perception or manage that perception because right now that trust is uh, is kind of becoming a bigger problem and and my encouragement to retailers is really think through the implications of that trust because 
you know what they say, it takes years to build and moments to destroy. Marty, 73% is an awfully high number. I mean, I, I don't think that, I, I suppose there's the motivation isn't necessarily there. They're not blaming, they're not saying retailers are gouging necessarily, but they're certainly questioning why prices have gone up so much and where those margins are coming from. Although we hear from retailers that their margins, they're not making money, right? Uh, and this is the, you know, the perception versus the reality. That again, you know, Ben, I'll, I'll shy away from today talking about, you know, who I think is right or wrong. Because right. It's a very complicated dilemma. That's why I go back to, you know, perception matters here. Uh, but the truth of the matter is shoppers and end users, they, they often either don't know and sometimes, quite frankly, may not care what the reason is. All they know is when I go to ring it up the till, it's a lot of money and I only have so much money in my wallet. So the emotions tend to jump in very quickly, even though the facts may not be clear. Yeah. And at the holiday, during the holidays, when, you know, when you're sort of expected to spend more, I know that that comes into play even in an even greater impact. Speaking of the holidays, uh, charitable giving is always a big deal. And that's being hit too. you found. It is. Unfortunately, that's another you know element of the aftermath of the situation we're in. So interestingly, Ben, I would share that during the pandemic, also in times where not exactly, you know, the sun wasn't totally shining. We saw the charitable giving number actually continue to ratchet up. I think there was potentially more empathy and sympathy you know, in terms of what was happening globally with COVID and all the, the causes that were emerging and strengthening through that. But now, given what we just talked about on inflation and fear of the economic situation weakening, you know, 40% uh, of folks are going to spend less on charitable giving. So it's not only the retailers that are unfortunately have a tough season, but this is an important moment for a lot of organizations looking to fundraise during the holiday season. And quite frankly, leverage people's goodness, that's going to be a challenge for those companies or not-for-profits as well. Yeah, probably the most important time of year for them. I, I suspect in some, in some ways people had a bit of, you know, given the circumstances and serve, and I, I don't know how much to blame, not blame to accredit all of it to, but it felt like at, at the height of the pandemic, people had a little bit of extra money lying around and were happy to donate it. And now people have kind of run out of that surplus. And here we are. And the first thing to go is something like charitable giving, unfortunately. You've got it. You've got it. And I would say, you know, the other thing that's happening here, just to draw a distinction between during the pandemic and now that impacts here is savings rates. So we saw during the heart of the pandemic, Canadians, because a lot of things were closed and there was some government money, to your point, savings rates were pretty high. People were stashing away money in the mattress from the bank to the tune of about 20 to 25 percent of what they were receiving. That savings rate now, probably I would say close to the end of August, we see that going back to the sort of the longitudinal normal, which is like five, six or so percent. So some of that cash that was sitting in mattresses and bank accounts has been dipped into a la everything we're talking about. So that's not an outlet anymore, really, either. Mentioned, of course, that amongst that, there is there is a bit of a, I wouldn't call it a contradiction, but there is a, a portion of the consumer public that's also looking for sustainability and looking for more from their retailers as well. So there's a sweet spot in there somewhere where people are actually willing to spend a little bit more money for something they believe in. And that's that's a tough one for retailers. It is. You know, we've been tracking this for a few years now, Ben, in terms of the concept of sustainability and, and despite what's going on, what will consumers do? I would say just over half of consumers, and this skews younger and female, say they're willing to pay an extra for products that are certified as socially compliant, sustainable, produced by factories that engage in employee well-being, etc. And about 37% are going to choose sustainable or responsibly sourced holiday gifts when they can. So those are sort of glimmers of light because we are trying to obviously help our planet Uh, stay in the shape it is or get better, obviously, uh, from what we're hearing. But the challenge we have is they also believe that 
retailers have the onus to be responsible for creating and selling these products to harm the planet. But consumers say, you know, half of us, we don't believe most of the greener, sustainable claims that these brands and retailers are making. So when we talked earlier on before the break about trust, this is another example where trust is being challenged around claims being made versus what consumers believe. So retailers have work to do to better educate and help shoppers understand their claims around sustainability and, you know, how and why they are real. Yeah, and I, I, I've been reading in other surveys, of course, that that retailers have had a bit of a tough 2023, just like everyone else. And they were really hoping that this holiday season would bring some relief. And it doesn't look like it's going to. They have their work cut out for them as well. Yeah, there'll be pockets. I mean, obviously, we're talking in, in averages and generally mm-hmm. speaking, that is what's going to happen. Some exceptions to that are what we're seeing. And this probably is not going to be surprising, but we're going to see some of those dollars shift to an increase in channels like dollar stores, mass merchant retailers, warehouse clubs. There we're seeing anywhere from 12 to 13 percent, you know, spend increasing. But obviously that's at the expense of all those other retailers that would have gotten that money prior or, you know, you can see that the concept here being value oriented retail. So if you're not in a value oriented proposition with the customer you chances are you're gonna lose out yeah and to top it all off you're just mentioning the trust factor too it's hard for retailers to find employees now to explain that stuff to to customers when they walk in so you're sort of in this in a bit of it feels like a bit of a vicious cycle uh for the retail sector right now it is right with over half the money going to still come through store tills staffing those stores so let let alone let's push aside the fact that it's hard to staff stores and and all those challenges we've had but the cost of staffing stores has gone up obviously minimum wage has gone up wages have gone up so that's additional pressure on the PL that the retailer has to face but of course back to my earlier stat about shopping you know 16 different stores and sites if i walk into a store to buy something and there's nobody that helped me or i gotta wait you know 10 deep to pay for my purchase i'm probably gonna leave what i got there and go somewhere else Yeah. Uh, Well, Marty Weintraub, as always, this is an interesting report. Thanks so much for sharing the details. My pleasure. The cool thing about Norway is everyone in Norway speaks perfect English, right? Only they only talk it, um, they only speak it when they're talking to you or when they're saying your name, right? So like, and I don't speak a word of Norwegian, right? So I was over there in Norway, hanging out with the Norwegian people, and they're just like, whoa, 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 Norwegian, 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 Dave Hill, and I was like, what, what? Whoa, 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 Norwegian, 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 Dave Hill, I'm like, what, what's going on? Whoa, 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 Norwegian, 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 Dave Hill, I'm like, what? So it's kind of like being a dog, right? Like, I have no idea what's going on, but I'm like, pretty sure we're having a really good time, and they say my name every once in a while, and I run or I'm like, whoa, what's going on? Are we going outside? What are we doing? And I'm like, oh, nothing. I'll go lie back down on the floor and go to sleep for four hours. That is comedian Dave Hill, and uh, that's his Cleveland comedy show. He's from Cleveland, uh, and he does a lot of, say, the Pride of Cleveland comedy show was called. And indeed, he's a writer, comedian, singer, songwriter. Uh, you may have seen him in The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. He was on Full Frontal with Samantha Bee, King of Miami, Inside Amy Schumer. He's pretty well known in the U.S., and he is an avid hockey fan. Um, now, if you're Canadian, eh, an avid hockey fan. They're a dime a dozen, right? They're everywhere. Stop anywhere. You talk to someone about hockey. Chances are someone will have a bit of an opinion. Not always, but but often. 
Uh, but it turns out, uh, even though Cleveland looks like a pretty chilly, un- inhospitable place, I've never actually been to Cleveland, but I've watched football games from there in the dead of winter, and it looks a lot like, you know, Edmonton, doesn't it? Doesn't it look cold and windy, and it's on the Great Lakes? I mean, it could be a Canadian city, more or less. But it turns out that uh, hockey isn't really a thing there, at least not when Dave was growing up. Um, as Sizzlin' Steve points out, they did have the Cleveland Barons back very briefly in the late 70s. They'd come as the California Golden Seals, then disappeared and merged into the Minnesota North Stars, which I love the North Stars. So that was a good part of my childhood. But they had a hockey team for a while, but you know, they played in the middle of nowhere. No one really went, you know, one of those things. So he used to gaze longingly north to exotic places such as Val Marie, Saskatchewan, hometown of his favorite player, Brian Trottier, Moose Jaw, Flin Flon, Thurso, the list goes on and on and on, the birthplaces of his hockey heroes. He has a Canadian grandfather, by the way, really helped spur the love of this game. Well, now he's decided to put it all down on paper in a book he calls The Awesome Game, One Man's Incredible Globe-Crushing Hockey Odyssey. It's the follow-up to a book called Parking the Moose, One American's Epic Quest to Uncover His Incredible Canadian Roots. And it his hockey book took him on a journey across Canada and around the world. He sets out to answer that eternal question, I suppose, for him and for us, too, here in Canada. Why is not hockey more popular in the U.S.? Why isn't it? He gets sidetracked along the way from Poland to Kenya to Finland. He spends time in Canada, Gatineau, you name it, and a whole bunch of places in between. He calls New York City home, and Dave Hill joins me now to tell me exactly what he found on this great big hockey odyssey he went on. Dave, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is quite the ode to hockey, and I think if you're Canadian, you'll read it and think, how interesting that someone, because I always grew up thinking, of, you know, I remember the Cleveland Crusaders and the Barons, and I always thought of, of, of Cleveland as being kind of a hockey town. But then when you think about it, maybe not. So you kind of grew up in, no not, no pun intended, but in kind of a hockey Siberia. Yeah, it was just, you know, it was, you know, it was like me and like two other kids in my school who had any interest in hockey. And uh, and so, yeah, it was a lonely, lonely way to grow up, you know, in a, in a city where like, you know, knowing about, you know, what was going on with the Browns and the Cavs and the Indians was, you know, social currency. Being a hockey fan was the opposite. You know, if you if you brought up, you know, oh, the Rangers and Flyers are playing tonight, you know, that would be more like it would be say, what who what are you talking about? Um, it was it was it was sad. It was, it was uh, I cried myself to sleep many nights after hockey night in Canada. <laughs> yeah, you're not alone. You're not alone. But at that age, you're also one becomes so obsessive with stuff. Like you want to share your favorite player and their stats and all that stuff. I mean, you kind of part of liking sports at a certain age is that idea of community, right? You get to share what you love with other people. And it's, you know, yeah, if you like, yeah. if you like sort of English football growing up in Canada, I had, you know, friends whose parents were Scottish. And so they would talk about these weird teams I'd never heard of. And they, they could have been talking about something that was happening on another planet, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I and mean, that was, uh, yeah, that was definitely the feeling growing up in Cleveland. Uh, the, fort, the sport has grown. We still don't have another NHL team ever since the Barons left. And adding insult to injury, the Columbus Blue Jackets have been uh, around a while now. Still no Cleveland team. But, you know, uh, I'm just making... Unfortunately, I'm a lover of the game now at this point. And uh, I live in New York and pretty much happy to, happy to watch almost any game uh, with some enthusiasm. 
And you do. So what made you decide to go on sort of a pilgrimage? Because you, it takes you to many, many places, some very interesting places. I mean, the thesis of the book is why, why isn't hockey more popular in America? Uh, and, and, but this takes you to other places, strange places where it is, in fact, popular. Um, what made you decide to kind of tackle this? Was it just a, a love of the game and wanting to see what, how it gets played in Poland or Finland or Kenya or all the other places you went? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that was, you know, part of it, it uh, you know, was it's really the only thing in my that I that I'm passionate about in life that I haven't somehow turned into a, you know, at least part of my career. Everything else I'm into, comedy, music writing and you know, any even like visual art because I do a lot of, you know, stuff in association with my other stuff I'll do artwork. You know, I kind of combine all my interests, but hockey's the one thing that's just like I haven't really been able to, you know, enjoy it other than going to a game or watching a game on TV. And I thought, you know, for selfish reasons, I thought, well, what if I got a little money from my publisher to go see games <laughs> in other countries, you know, things like that. And it was just... It was cool to just see, you know, what a, what a great connector hockey is. Like, as you were saying, like, you know, just connecting people over your love of something to, you know, to find myself in, in uh, you know, Kenya of all places, hanging out with hockey players and geeking out over, you know, you know, hockey, you know, showing each other like cool stuff on our Instagram of like different amazing plays and stuff, you know, it's just something you would never think's going to happen in your life. And, uh, yeah. So it was yeah. amazing. It's, it's one of those secrets. I was a foreign correspondent for quite a while that if you're in a place like Thailand, for instance, and there's something big going on, you look up the local hockey league to find Canadians. That's what you do, right? You literally say, I wonder if they have a hockey team there. And there's always a hockey team everywhere you go, including in Bangkok. And you look them up yeah. because you know, you know, you're going to find Canadians. It's what it's, it's a bit like in America. I was, it was sort of what, what university you went to and they'd all find each other around the world for Canada. It's like, where's the pickup league? Where's the pickup league? And yeah, invariably yeah. there'd be people from all over the world there, as you found out, right? Like Aussies and Finns and Russians and, you know, everyone who loves hockey would be there if they were an expat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, interestingly in Kenya, I didn't meet any Americans, but I did meet a few Canadians that had relocated there. Um, so yeah, true to what you're saying. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, Canadians to the rescue as always, as always. <laughs> you, you're very kind. The um, what was it like to watch hockey in other places? Because I think Canadians are used to watching hockey at different level levels. So there's, you know, rec league and, you know, it gets more and more intense Then you get the juniors and the pros and so on and so forth. But, you know, I've been to games in Moscow and it's a very different experience. It's a very, very different experience than watching a game in North America. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I, it's kind of, I mean, having been to games in Poland and Finland and it's really, uh, it's kind of ruined me a little bit for games here in North America, just because the intensity of the fans, I mean, especially in Poland, it was like soccer hooliganism. It was just insanity, like through, like even in between periods, if you, you know, I'd be in line getting a beer at a game in Poland and there, the fans would still be chanting like you would think it was the last minute of the third period tie game. It was insanity and just, 
you know, just in and and fights and stuff like that. It was just uh, like fights, you know, in, in the, the stands, that yeah. sort of thing. Passion, right? I mean, passion for the game, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. And uh, you know, Finland was super intense too. Not quite as intense as as Poland, but then, like, I have to say, you know, coming back to North America and going to a game, it's it's relatives relatively sleepy compared to just the. Um, energy and insanity i think probably you know the arenas are smaller in europe and i think that adds to like the intensity of just everyone being crammed in there together and uh you know that not as not as many snacks available i think (laughs) really i think you know just making the fans just don't pamper them as much you know in poland you could get beer water and sheet pizza that was it that's a game and you know it enraged the fans and uh they're just out of control the entire game yeah the the hockey is i mean the hockey is not the only spectacle but it's what you're there for it's not sort of this idea of the full entertainment experience that a lot of nhl rings try to provide these days oh yeah i mean the nhl i you know i understand that like they're trying to make it fun for every you know little kids, grandmothers and stuff like, you know, you go to a game, there's a DJ for some reason. They're like, oh, let's throw to the DJ. We don't need a DJ at the game. Well, there's enough excitement on the ice. We don't, you know, don't get me wrong. I love a T-shirt cannon, but, you know, come on, enough. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> let's, let's, let's just focus on what's going on the ice. I, I think, uh, I don't know, not to, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm half joking, but also not really joking. Dave, it was amazing to think, because I think, I mean, there is this myth in hockey that, that existed for a long time, maybe a little bit less now. But when I was growing up, you know, Guy Lafleur was from Thurso, this tiny little town, and he'd play on his backyard rink for, you know, 40 hours. He'd play for hours and hours on end. And that was the hockey mythology of, you know, small town kids from across the country who loved the game, who were devoted to playing the game a certain way, and then made it big, right? And they were, you know, a lot of big stars were from pretty small places. And that gave yeah. hockey a certain allure i think and it's not exceptional to hockey but it certainly is part of hockey's mythology oh absolutely and yeah it was hearing those stories i mean like i remember i didn't start playing organized hockey like in a league until i was 11 and i remember at the time thinking like oh my gosh i i i'm so i'm doomed i'll never i mean i I guess i was partially i was definitely right I, i i was like how will i make the nhl and as we know I, I didn't make the NHL, but um, I, bl- I blame my parents for not making me play hockey at, you know, two and a half years old. I think the way Wayne Gretzky started playing. Um, but yeah, just that I just I really romanticized that as a kid. And, and to this day, like it's just uh, it's just uh, I love the idea of it. Just and fortunately, I was able to play pond hockey a couple of times in my life. And it was just uh, I felt like oh following in the footsteps or, or skate track, whatever it would be. Well, the ice now yeah, <laughs> of, the ice. Of, my, of my heroes. Yeah. yeah. Just that. I mean, just you guys outdoor rinks. I mean, we don't, you know, Minnesota maybe has them, but we don't really have that in America. So I was really, just really jealous yeah. of, of Canada growing up. 
I mean, Cleveland had had. I mean, I remember the Cleveland Barons pretty well because I was at that age where I was obsessed with everyone's uniforms, right? So I was obsessed with the Kansas City Scouts and the California Golden Seals, and then they became, you know, the Jersey Devils and oh, the Colorado Rockies actually, and and the Cleveland Barons. And I was, you know, I went to find Cleveland on a map and figure out where it was and why were they called the Barons and what weird uniforms they had. Uh, you must remember your first game too, because that's a big part of it. My first game was Montreal Toronto at the Forum, and the Canadians won two to one. I mean, I remember the game vividly and that's this was you know 40 some odd 45 years ago oh wow that's so yeah i remember i my first game was uh the barons playing and i'm I'm embarrassed i can't remember who they were playing but you know i would have been like six years old playing at richfield coliseum outside also the barons played they didn't even play like in cleveland it was a total schlep like way out in the middle of nowhere where they played at this arena and my like grandfather, Ottawa, like Ottawa now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I've been to that current the Ottawa Arena. It is, it's yeah. What is? Why, put it in. What's where? Why is it out there? But um, yeah, I went to see see the Barons play, and we had we had seats right behind the penalty box, and I remember seeing this player by the name of Len Frigg in the box multiple times, and he was um the first NHL player I saw up close and I, his name was just burned on my brain my whole life. And I was always just like, I wonder where Len Frigg is now. So for this book, I was like, you know, it's time I'm going to find him. And I found him. I stalked him via the internet and uh, I gave him a call and, and I think he thought I was insane most <laughs> likely. Uh, and I, I just kind of, kept checking in with him and then finally the stars aligned and he was going to be in New York. And, uh, we met at a Mexican restaurant and had some beers and nachos. And, uh, it was amazing, <laughs> you know, all, you know, this guy, I remember from my childhood to be sitting there with him all those years later, you know, talking about hockey. I was just, uh, I, and I, anytime I talk to anyone like that, uh, you know, him or Slava Fetisov from the Soviet team or, or Brian Trache from the Islanders. I, I just felt like a little kid again. And if you hear the recordings of those interviews, it's, it's, it's horrifying. Cause I do sound about 10 years old. Cause I, I sound like Chris Farley talking to Paul McCartney. I'm just <laughs> like, was that awesome when you were playing? <laughs> Dave Hill is with us. His book is called The Awesome Game, One Man's Incredible Globe-Crushing Hockey Odyssey. It took him right around the world and across Canada, too. There's some great stories. And part of the fun part, too, is the fandom, sort of finding players that he loved. Len Frigg was, was, was a defenseman with the Cleveland Barons, played with the California Golden Seals for a while as well. He was a bruiser, uh, lots of penalties. And that was kind of the first player that, uh, that Dave saw. And, and then he gets to meet him in this book. Mine was a guy called Tim Young, who played for the Minnesota North Stars, had a couple of great years. Um, um, and not so many after that, but I always had a lot of affinity for people who liked more obscure players. It was so easy to like Wayne Gretzky or Mike Bossy or Denny Potvin or any of them. But to love to love a strange player was is always pretty special. What was it like to sit down with Len Frigg? You mentioned you must have been a little flabbergasted to think, wow, who is this kid who thought I was awesome 40 years ago? Yeah, yeah. It was uh I think he was a little confused because you know. I got his I was able I was able to get a hold of his phone number and and I called him and I was like is this Len Frigg from the Cleveland Barons and you know this is would have been however you know over 40 years later he was like what what yeah <laughs> and uh 
And he was, you know, for his work, he travels all the time. And, and so I was like, I'll come wherever you are in America. I'll just jump on a plane and come meet you. And which I think that's when it started. To, I think I started to scare him. This, guy, <laughs> this weird guy that was like going to track him down. And then, uh, but it, it was such a thrill. And uh, I still think, you know, he probably th still thinks I'm crazy, I imagine. But I don't care. I, <laughs> it was... It was like truly something on my mind my whole life. I would just, I would look him up on the internet from time to time, you know, to stats and like all this. And I even, I, I bought a picture of him from his Barron's days off of eBay. And I had that hanging in my bathroom. I kind of have a hockey bathroom at home because my girlfriend understandably will not let it turn into like a hockey living room or anything like that. And, uh, <laughs> I brought, I took the picture down and put it in an envelope and brought it with me when I had beers with him. And I, I got him to sign it for me and I hung it back up at home. And uh, what, what a thrill. To... <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I'm excited to, to finally send him the book and uh, hopefully, hopefully he enjoys it as well. I wonder if hockey players at the time, you know, you mentioned watching, I mean, I grew up watching hockey in the seventies. That's when I first fell in love with hockey and sort of the glamor of, of, of everyone with the, like the long hair and the mustaches. And they all look like, they all look like they were about, a, you know, many, many, many decades older than I was at the time, which they weren't, they're only about 15, 20 years older than I was at the most, but they seem so, um, they seem so epic to me at the time. And, and it was everything about it, the uniforms, everything. Oh, totally. And I mean, I, I just had this real, realization fairly recently. Um, yeah, growing up, I thought of these players as these big, burly men. And I went to a Rangers game a couple seasons, kind of like right after the pandemic. And they have, you know, they have the lineup on the Jumbotron. And that, as, as the first, somehow the first realization that I'd had of like, oh my gosh, these are children playing yeah. this game they are now yeah for sure. yeah it was amazing i was just like oh my gosh these guys can barely shave most of them <laughs> and here they are you're playing the game you love you have a great section on it and i think this is part of what makes hockey or at least when i was young what what made hockey really alluring i mean i played it and i loved it but it was just the whole it was the uniforms too it was the shirts and it was i, I became obsessed at i think when i was about eight or nine with the wha for reasons i can't explain and went oh. back and found all the jerseys you know the, the los angeles sharks the minnesota fighting saints and all these old jerseys the michigan stags the new jersey stags i mean there were a ton of them that would last for like a season and then vanish forever um uh, the, you know the hartford whalers or wh you know new england whalers at the time and i just love the jerseys and that really comes out in your book too this sort of love of not just the game but everything that surrounds it the whole kind of pageantry around it oh absolutely and and jerseys i mean i'm obsessed with jerseys i mean i have a conflicted relationship because with jerseys because I, I love jerseys but i also think wearing a hockey jersey just like around, you know, walking down the street is 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 maybe the lowest form of human dress. It's very lazy. <laughs> it's just like wearing a muumuu, you know, when you're not wearing pads or anything. But I'm so into I'm so into them, and I collect them. And uh, and yeah, those 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 WHA jerseys especially were were really cool. And uh, I've tracked down a couple of those, uh, you know, just like. 
there's people out there that make like new versions of them yeah. and things like that. And uh, yeah, I'm obsessed and I, and I love, I mean, the, the NHL jerseys, there's some great ones, but I think the NHL jerseys tend to be the most boring of all hockey jerseys because they, you know, I think they're, again, they're trying for broader appeal. They want people's grandmothers to wear them and, you know, but, but, you know, the minor league, like, especially here in Canada, amazing jerseys, like the Sudbury Wolves jersey is one of my, maybe if not, it might be the greatest jersey of all time. It It's like, has this crazed wolf on it that looks like it was drawn by a 15 year old hopped up on Mountain Dew, like in the back of history class or something. And then it's got blood dripping off the teeth and flying you know, there's literally like droplets of blood across the jersey. That's what that's what a jersey should be: violent and unhinged. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, hockey's become pretty pretty corporate, right? Do you have, do you have a favorite? Do you, have, do you still have a favorite amongst all you? You actually go through all the jerseys. You're like most of us. You're kind of a a fan of the original six. But are there is, yeah. is there a favorite out there amongst all of them? Sudbury Wolves obviously uh, gets a nod. I think uh, I think the Cataracts to Shawinigan's team have, have pretty awesome jerseys. Or is it the Drakkar? It was the Drakkar, right? That they the Dr- oh, yeah, the Drakkar <laughs> has really good. Uh... I thought it was a cologne until I saw the jersey. Yeah, exactly. There's this. Yeah, it it looks like it has this like viking ship with this dragon on on the what would that be the bow the front of it am i getting that right i think so yeah the dragon the dragon honestly looks kind of high if you ask me and then uh upon closer inspection you see that there are little vikings in the boat and they're they're rowing with hockey sticks which seems you know not as effective but uh cool and I think that's a really good jersey. I love, uh, I mean, for NHL, my favorite all time is the now defunct Quebec Nordiques, maybe the greatest jersey of all time, in my expert opinion. Um, the Kenya Ice Lions, you know, I talk about, they, I go play with them in the book, and their jersey, that's how I found out about them. I was searching for the coolest non NHL jerseys, and I found this website, and that's, they had the Ice Lions jersey, and I was like, wait, uh, Kenya, uh, Kenya, Iceland, is Kenya some small town in, in, in Canada I've never heard of? And, uh, you know, upon further research, I realized, oh, it's the, it's the arguably more popular country of Kenya, uh, of Kenya. So yeah. their jerseys, pretty amazing. Uh, Finland, I, I wound up, you know, go, I, I always wanted to go to Finland and, you know, especially see, you know, it's pretty much the number two country in the world for hockey. And, there's a team there, the Tempera Ilves. They play about an hour and a half north of Helsinki. And their jersey, similar to the Sudbury Wolves, also looks like it was drawn not even by a teenager, but maybe even by a small child. <laughs> it looks it's just this crazed lynx. And uh it's it's and and I I wanted that jersey so badly and I went to the team store on online but it was like 75 dollars to ship it to new york and i was like there's no way they're getting me on this 75 dollar shipping charge i'm just gonna go to finland and buy this jersey so i showed them i showed them you got one yeah i got one and it was that that gave me great satisfaction when i when i finally got to the uh got to a game and bought a jersey 
You know, it did yeah. it did cost me a little more in the end than the seventy five dollars shipping, but I wouldn't change a thing. But it was for the it's more fun to buy it in the, in place, right? One of the things that's oh, interesting, yeah. you must have been for a young kid in Cleveland, you must have been able to pronounce at least by the by the mid eighties, you must have been able to pronounce more names of more Finns, Swedes, Russians, Czechs than anybody else in your anybody else you'd ever met. This is yeah, you raise a good point, and I don't think that I've I'm not sure if I even touched on that in the book. Just yeah. Just uh, the broadening my horizons, language skills that following hockey, you know, can do for you. Yeah, especially, you know, as the league, as you know, I mean, if you there's I did look this up on the Internet again, just like the league every year, you know, it goes from being like ninety nine point nine percent Canadian. And then every year it's like more guys from the U.S. and from all over the world, which is cool. It is. It's. It's. I mean, it's changed the game a lot. Yeah, I was. I was actually. I had a chance to interview Vladislav Tretsiak a while ago, and I. I was trying to press upon him that as like a five year old, I could pronounce the every name on the Russian team, right on the Soviet team. At oh the time. yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's one of the he, like of all time. Yeah, absolutely. And like, like your interview with Slava Fetisov, he kind of brushed it aside. You know, they're not one. They're not big on the sentimentality. The, the, the Soviet players, I found, but he was really cool. Did you ever answer oh. your question? Because it reminds me of the nineteen eighty. You know, the 1980 Miracle on Ice, I always thought that was it. Hockey was going to take over America, and it and it didn't, and it hasn't, oh, really. Yeah, there was just like a little craze, um, you know, uh, where everyone... Uh, that was like the year where everyone in my grade school was like into hockey for a few weeks. It was sort of like, uh, you know, a few years back when the, the U.S. curling team beat right. Canada, I believe, in the Olympics, and all anyone in America could talk about for the next, you know, two or three hours maybe was curling. And then it died. It died by that fourth hour. It kind of dropped off pretty quickly. But, um, but yeah, you always hope that there's going to be some moment that, you know, really, really, uh, pushes things to the next level. We'll, we'll get there in America though. It'll be the number one sport. Uh, hopefully, you know, before I move on to that great that, rink in the sky, that, that great rink in the sky. Do you have? Do you have? <laughs> did, you, did you ever come up? With, I guess you, it's really tough to come. I think everyone has theories as to why it's not more popular in the U.S. Too many other things going on. You know, it, it doesn't have the same mystique that uh, any, any other sports. You know, baseball is struggling. But did you ever come up with sort of some sort of theory as to why it hasn't caught on more, other than in places like Massachusetts and Minnesota? I, I think you know probably like it probably has a lot to do with that. Like there's not a lot of naturally occurring ice. Uh, you know, you can't just like run outside and start playing hockey many places in America. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really expensive, all the equipment, there's the, that stuff. And then I don't know. And I, you know, I do have like conspiracy theories that maybe it's like some sort of, uh, Canadian resentment, you know, well, us <laughs> resent, resenting Canada for having, in, you know, because, you know, we invented football, baseball, basketball invented by a Canadian, but done so yes. in the United States. So, you know, could could go either way who invented it. I personally have zero interest in basketball, so you guys can have it. Um, so I don't know. Maybe maybe that's it that, you know, it was this it's a sport from somewhere else. And uh, maybe that's a That's a sliver of it. Uh and 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 yeah, just but I, it's spreading, and you know the game is moving further west and south, and all that, and you know away from you know when it was the original six, where it was just 
you know, the East Coast and Chicago and Detroit. Um, so I think I think it'll I think it'll get there. Just going to just going to take some time. But, you know, I'm just I just I just want it for everyone to everyone know everyone to know this magic, this magical sport. I just think it, I just genuinely think it's better than all the other sports, period. So, yeah. You know. so, and seeing it live, I mean, we know we want our cup back, by the way. It's been a long, long time. Yeah. We've been waiting for 30. You've had the cup for 30 years now. So in some senses, if you're I an mean, American would, hockey fan, it's a good time. I would love to see it. I mean, I, I would love to see uh, a Canadian team, especially, you know, being a fan of the original six. You know, I would, of course, love to see Montreal or or, or Toronto win the cup. But Van, but then Vancouver, you know, um, really anyone, I, I guess, you know, Ottawa being the newest team, you know, maybe is the last on my list of Canadian teams I'd like to see win it. But sure, they can have it, too. But after everyone else, Vancouver, after everyone, everyone else gets their turn. Yeah, maybe we'll go on an epic winning streak. I don't see it happening this year, but you never know. You never know, Dave. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for having me.